Welcome to Turf Dudes, show number 48. In this episode, we're joined by Dr. Mingyi Chow, turfgrass pathologist at Rutgers University. Dr. Chow's program focuses on evaluating and developing efficient cool season turfgrass disease management measures, including cultural practices, disease prediction models, synthetic fungicides, and biorational agents with a focus on plant-soil microbiome interactions. We're excited to have Dr. Chow on the show to hear his perspective on the current status of turfgrass pathology, what the future holds, and how our growing understanding of the plant-soil microbiome will play a part in turfgrass management moving forward. Turf Dudes is a Herald's agronomy team collaboration of Dr. Raymond Snyder, Dr. Paul Giordano, and Dr. Jeff Atkinson. Turf Dudes is produced by Brandon Clark. Enjoy the show. Well, hey, appreciate you joining us. Um, it was good to meet you earlier this summer, and I know that this is a kind of an exciting position for you to move into uh, the Rutgers Turf Program. You know, it's very important to Harold's uh, the development of our products. We put a lot of credence into what what you guys do as a whole program. So excited to have you a part of it. Uh, but with that, you know, a lot of our listeners historically know, you know, who was in your position previously with Rutgers, uh, but also know there's been a tra- transition, but may not have had an opportunity quite yet to meet you. Um, so why don't you, we start out, just tell us a little bit about yourself, a little bit about your background and kind of where you came from and how your journey ended up at Rutgers. Okay, great. Yeah, of course. Uh, thanks for having me. So my name is Mingyi Cho. I came from uh, Taiwan. I grew up in uh, a city, Taipei, uh, it's the capital in Taiwan. So I did my undergrad in horticulture uh, science, focused on uh, viticulture, so growing grapes, making wines. Uh, not quite so in making wines in Taiwan, but uh, viticulture for uh, table grapes. And then I was just get really interested in and all the wine world because the majority of the, the grapes making do wine in this world. So I, I got my master in a wine business from uh, the Burgundy School of Business in, in, in Dijon, France. And then after that, I worked in, as a sommelier in a, a restaurant called L'Atelier de Joël Robuchon, which is now a two Michelin restaurant for about a year, year and a half. And then um, I'm just really tired of the hospitality life. You know, you get up at you know, nine o'clock and then you work until midnight, one o'clock and you, you know, the routines and don't see sunlight. So I kind of want, just want to go find a career that allowed me to, to be able to go outside, but some, you know, and then have the time to be indoor as well. So I want that life balance. So I decided to, to come back to, uh, to plant, plant research. So I took that opportunity to go uh, to do my PhD over at Cornell University. I did it in horticulture biology. It was, it was a focus on uh, viticulture, but a lot of the techniques that I use was microbial uh, ecology. So that's where I start uh, learning a lot about uh, microbes and you know their their interaction with plants. Um, after that, I took a job over at uh, Napa Valley, California. I was a manager of vineyard technology for about a year or so. And then um, I just really missed the academia. So I came back to academia, um, realized that the guy, uh, Dr. Paul Koch, uh, provided the opportunity. He was looking for somebody who knows how to run microbiome study. So I just took the opportunity. I didn't really know much about turf grass except for um, with the time I was at Cornell, I, I TA for Dr. Frank Rossi. So I heard a lot of good stories from him, and, you know, knowing, you know, how great the, the, 
the turf grass industry is. So, you know, I had, so I just happily took the position, you know, I used my techniques in, in microbiome in turf grass system. So that's kind of got me into the turf grass world. Um, I, so that was my first postdoc with Dr. Paul Koch. I spent a lot, about two years and then I move on to my second postdoc over at um, Michigan State University. It's actually a department of energy uh, lab. Uh, I studied uh, more in depth into microbial uh, community interacting with plants and the, tar- the, the plant material I used was switchgrass and sorghum. You know, it's all poesy, not so much grass, but um, um, so there's a slight link there, but really that helped me go a little bit in depth into the microbial uh, or microbiome and also bioinformatic techniques. And then, but I, I still miss, you know, the turf grass system kind of at the time I spent, I spent my time first postdoc with Paul, the, the turf grass kind of grew in me. So, um, so I just wanted to go back and then there's the opportunity opened up and, and I went back as, um, to Paul Koch's lab as a research scientist. After about a year, um, the Rockers had this uh, position open and I just applied. And, yeah, I, I, I want to come back to Northeast. That's one reason. And then I knew how, you know, how great this team here is. You know, the Turfgrass team over Rutgers University is just, you know, one of the top team. Um, and then, you know, when I was with Bo, I, you know, we, we had a plenty of collaboration with the Rutgers team. So, you know knowing that this is going to be a, a great position. So I applied and I got it. So that's why how my journey to, to turf grass industry, also to uh, Rutgers University. Well, Mingyi, we're happy to have you over on the turf side. We really are. And, and uh, we are welcome. And so, listen, I, th- I think we could probably spend two hours and I think there'd be a lot of interest about your time in viticulture and working as a sommelier and uh, I know our customer yeah. base has a lot of interest in that, but we're we're gonna keep it with turf and and try to stay on on task here. But I'm I think that's a fascinating aspect of your background for sure. Um, yeah. So now that you're you're at Rutgers, you're in this storied program. As Jeff mentioned, you know we we do a lot of work with Rutgers in that program. It's it's I mean top tier research across the globe comes out of that program. So how have you found yourself settling in? You you started what not too long ago this this past year, right? And um, yep. So how how are things going? How are you settling in? Do you, you you feeling good about it? Yeah, yeah. I started it this April. Um, I I think I you know I settled in pretty well. I, I like Rutgers a lot. Uh, you know, um, there's obviously a lot of things to learn to navigate. But uh, like I said, there's that there's this great team here um, in place. So uh, settling wasn't too much a problem. Uh, you know, once I got here. The, the fungicide program is already, you know, running, you know, um, and this year we probably did uh, close to uh, 500 uh, treatments. So um, it, was a, it was somewhat a learning curve, but, I, you know, I, I, I learned the system, although it's a little bit different system over at Wisconsin Madison with Paul and, and Kurt, but that really helped me getting ready and, and, and learn a new system. And so, um, Took a little bit of time, but uh, it's not too bad. And I've been really enjoying it in that. I'm very grateful that uh, people here, they're very helpful. And Kyle Genova, you know, he, he knew the system. So it kind of, and he and, and Dr. Clark as well, you know, they're, they're here to provide a lot of good advices. So whenever I need something that I'm, you know, 
I couldn't really um, uh, figure out myself. You know, there's resources out there. Um, and, you know, people here in Rutgers are, they're very gen- generous about um, uh, their, their time, their knowledge um, and sharing. So I'm very grateful. And selling, I think it's all good. Good, good. I mean, you got a great program. You've obviously got a great industry in, in New Jersey and that surrounding area. And um, yeah, we're really looking forward to, to working with you and, and keeping that going. So you noted course, some yeah. of the 500 different treatments. Uh, what, are those associated with specific projects there at, uh, that you maybe are initiated or are continuing as I know you've only been there a little bit of time? Yeah, so a lot of those are um, the existing uh, collaboration partnership with uh, the fungicide companies or chemical companies or uh, industry collaborators. So, um, you know, like I said, I was really fortunate to, um, you know, to to jump into this position with existing resources. And those are those partnership and trust from the industry is one of those. Um, yeah, so I, I just, you know, I. I just, you know, jumping, like I said, I just jump into this position with a lot of existing things going on. And, um, yeah. The, the, the world of pathology and microbiology is, is pretty big and diverse in the, our turf grass industry. What do you have, have you identified any special interest of yours, that niche you want to carve out and help identify solutions for our industry? Yeah. So, um, like I said, my background is in microbial ecology, microbiome, so really studying the, the microbes in population. We know there's some, you know, in the population, there's good guys and there's bad guys. There's, you know, like bad guys are the diseases, the good guys are the beneficials, and, you know, things that breaks down fast theirs or uh, organic matters or help with uh, nutrient cycling and, uh, and disease antagonistics, right? But, uh, I think up until uh, the past decade, we didn't really have the tool to study what's actually going on and with a lot of the, the new development in molecular tools. And I'm, my, my background in training is in a lot of those. So I think I'll be able to use uh, those newly developed or m- more recently developed uh, technology to to dive into those uh, population and, and microbial interactions, especially how uh, the microbes interact, uh, the microbial communities interact with disease. So one study I started um, several years ago, and I'm continuing this, um, is I found that they're actually a suppressive, a disease suppressive microbiome. So a lot of time we'll do, we'll think, oh, if we can put uh, exogenous microbes that suppress the disease, like a biocontrol product, then that would be great. But a lot of time we see that they're not always that effective um and it, there's some a lot of challenges for 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 putting in exogenous uh microbes um it's all about fitness right but uh there is another route i'm taking is you can actually culture your your in-house army of um disease suppressive microbes you know there's the microbial diversity is always there it's just how you actually culture them and then manage them to the extent that they can actually provide a function you want. So first was to identify if there is actually a disease suppressive microbiome. And I, I found those uh, by surveying uh, a various uh, golf course um, from, from the country, from the Northeast and also the Midwest. And then now we're on to how do we actually 
how to properly program your management practices, in, including fungicidepications, the number of applications, and how many AIs you use, and the amount you use, and what kind of what class of fungicide you use, so that you can actually not killing your uh, beneficials, but um, at the same time, you can still use those to control your disease, but you know, slowly you can maintain your your healthy microbiome and keep it in your system over time. You know, you're basically culturing uh, your own biocontrol members in your your microbiome in your your facility, your your golf courses, or lawns, or um, sports turf. Excellent. So that's 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 one of my projects. So we're I'm still you know we're it's kind of in the the, the we finished the explorations step and now we're onto the me mechanism and management aspects of it. So Ming Yi, I'm curious, in your work thus far, you, you talk about these suppressive soils and the microbes involved. What have you found to be the, the major players? Are they by and large bacterial or fungal or nematodes or a collection of, obviously a collection of all of those, but what are the predominant beneficials that you are finding in these systems that are suppressive? So, um, so the tool I use, I only studied uh, bacteria and fungi, but only there's still a lot. Um, so in any sample we found, we can find maybe range from 15,000 to 20,000 different bacterial species and to 8,000 to 10,000, uh, 8,000 to 10,000 different species of fungi and any given, uh, you know, turf grass soil. Sure. Uh, so we use, I used um, bioinformatic tools and machine learning tools to navigate through those, try to find a, important predictors for the disease suppressiveness. And we identify a, a bunch of them. They're both bacteria, bacteria and fungi predictors. And a lot of them are known um, uh, antifungal agent producers, including ba bacterial producers and, and, and fungi producers. And also there, some of them are known um, nitrogen fixers or um, or plant health facilitator through nutrient cycling so they're they're both you know it's 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 not a surprise because you know if you want we talk about how the microbial community it's obviously interaction so they're multi-function and that's why i think a lot of time um by putting in one biological control agent don't necessarily give you the the ideal uh disease control because you're you're putting one function but a lot of time it actually requires a, a, a very complex complex interactions you know through giving the plant a little more uh nutrients and at the same, same time that you know booster um a triggered systemic uh immune immune responses and also being direct antagonistics so you, you, you need a, a broad range of different functions, and that's actually what we found uh, from those, uh, the data that we generated. I'm curious of those, you said, you know, several thousand, both fungi and bacterial species of those. And it's a lot easier for us today to, you know, take a sample of organisms, process their genetics and identify those. How all those say, let's just use 10,000 for a round number, you know, how many of those are do we know their function and how many of those are we still trying to figure out what function they play in the soil ecosystem? Yeah, uh, that's a very good question. I think uh, the, the answer is we, we, we have a slight clue on uh, 
a fraction of them, not all of them. So a lot of time for the techniques we use, especially for amplicon sequencing is what we uh, what I use. It's not enough to give you the, the real uh, resolution to get to know what spe specific uh, species or strains uh, of those those microbes. So it's all about a, a, a approximation, association, correlation, and you know, machine learning is just give you an idea. So you're we can kind of navigate through that large data set, and we find a probable member or probable function. And the next, so that's the that's what I meant uh, previously that the exploration stage. Now we're on to this mechanism, mechanistic stage or the, the management stage is that now we have to identify specific members and um, use different methods uh, to get a better resolution to know uh, what they're actually doing. So that's their the function. So uh, back to your question, um, you know, we're getting there and there are more uh, tools that we can use. We can use long read sequencing that give us a better resolution. You know, we can get down to species level sometimes. Uh, and, you know, mo most of the time, it depends on what uh, genetic marker you use. Um, function wise, I think it's still very difficult because, you know, for any bacteria or fungi or fungus that you, you select, you put them in different environment, they provide different function. There's so much capability uh, encoded in their genome. It just relate. it has to do with what environment you're putting this in, um, they'll provide different function. And that, that's that's also good, right? That's the, the function uh, plasticity or, you know, we want because the environment is changing. Um, and that's why you need a, pop, a, a community of those. Um, so, for example, in the summer, some will thrive and provide you the power control effects. And, you know, during later in the fall, the environment is different. You know, so temperature is different, humidity is different, and you know some other uh, community will thrive and provide you with the function that you want, and that's exactly uh, what you want, and and what's the benefit of, of culturing that uh, healthy community instead of putting one single strain of isolates. So kind of you know bringing in your, your viticulture background, but also your research in the switchgrass and sorghum bio communities i'm curious how where does turf grass wh where does it stack up in terms of what we know about the microbiomes as it relates to turf grass versus maybe those other um i guess those other crops that you you've worked in as well you know there are some similarities or some um knowledge that can apply to different crops but when i did the, the study on switchgrass and sorghum there was the focus was for biomass so it's very different you know those are supposedly for um, bioenergy feeding, feeding stock. So it's a very different target. So we're more looking into like a nutrient or especially nitrogen fixation. Um, and so it's a little, little different from what I'm looking at right now. Is there is there a crossover? I mean, it, it, like let's say we find a microbe that or a microbial community that is beneficial for nitrogen fixation within switchgrass. Can that same concept that you identify in switchgrass be applied to, to, you know, turf maintained at an eighth of an inch? Or is that, or the microbial populations just going to act different for a switchgrass community versus a, you know, creeping bent grass community? Yeah, I think it's, it's a very, it's a tough question. So um, 
I think sometimes you can. It really has to do with uh, the environmental fitness. So it's not just about the crop. Of course, the crop will engineer the environment to make it fit for the crop itself. But a lot of time has to do with the the, the soil type, right? If you're talking about like potting greens, you have a lot. You you, you know you're using the USGA scents and you know for those um, environmental parameters that will affect a lot on you know the microbial that you applied or the, the, the function that you wanted to perform, um, it will, will, will they actually do it or not? All right. So um, not just the point itself. I mean, if we just talk about the points, I think there there's some difference, but again, they're in the Poesi family. And I think there there's must be some microbes that, you know, they're, they, they're associated with uh, uh, switchgrass can be transferred into some other uh, grass species we use for turf grass, but uh, there are so many other factors to think about when we talk about um, if we can tr actually transplant and provide the function. You know, um, that's that's again that that's a whole uh, <laughs> whole um, a mystery sure. that we we'll have to solve. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you're you're. Uh, you're scratching the surface of some a, a fascinating topic, right? And and there's obviously so much left for us to learn. And I'm curious of you mentioned management practices and <clears throat> trying to influence the the microbial populations via management practices. So in your research thus far, uh, you talked about pesticides being sprayed and various products and things that we do in turf that are quite unique, particularly cultural practices. What are those things we do in turf that you found to influence microbial populations the most, either bad or good? Yeah. So from my study, we actually so I collected the management data for uh, nitrogen application and also uh, fungicide application, and tried to correlate that with the disease suppressiveness of the microbiome. Um, and what I found was that uh, the fungus application, both the quantity and also the frequency, frequency meaning the total amount of um, AIs you use in a year. And though both of those are, are very important in terms of, you know, uh, maintaining or culturing your disease suppressive microbiome. Uh, nitrogen didn't quite influence um, the disease suppressiveness of microbiome, but fungicide use or intensity is really the key. So my idea is that there, there are so many fungicides you can use. A lot of them are broad spectrum. You know, whenever you apply, you have to use high quantity, and then they're designed to kill fungi, but a lot of time also kill bacteria. So in that case, so the broad, the broader spectrum uh, fungicides, a lot of time, what we found is that they slightly correlate a little better with killing your uh, disease suppressiveness. So, but really, this is still exploratory. Essentially, we, we, we have a rule of thumb in our, um, by using the, the statistics model. So it's about, um, you know, 0.6 grain per uh, meter square um, of fungicide you can use a year to maintain, to still maintain your um, disease suppressiveness for microbiome. But, you know, this, like I said, it's still exploratory. So I wouldn't really use that rule of thumb. That's say, assuming that is true, then if you're using, say, chlorothalonol, then one application already exceed that uh, amount 
of uh, fungicide uh, threshold to maintain your healthy microbiome. But let's say if you use newer um, DMI products or other class, uh, you're probably using only 0.2 or 0.15 grains of AI per meter square. Then in that case, you can probably do four times uh, in a year. Again, that's preliminary. And but I think this is really interesting. It has to do with uh, what product you use and the, the and for each product, what the, the spectrum of uh, microbes that's targeting. Uh, also makes a, a, a impact. You're looking at some of the stuff that you published in the past. I saw that there was a paper related to uh, suppression of Claridia species with the soil microbiology, and that's kind of when you look at the products that are available in terms of in terms of biocontrol agents. Uh, dollar spot seems to be one. Being a foliar disease is, is tough to tough control, but also not too many labeled options there. In that research, were you able to find anything that worked on dollar spot that was somewhat effective for dollar spot applications? Let me clarify. So the, the, the study you mentioned is that the uh, uh, hyperlocal variation. Uh, the plant soil microbiome interactions mediate variation in dollar spot severity in turf grass. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So that so for that study, actually, what we found was if you re- it's again with it has to do with uh, the fungicide mode of action. And has to do with the microbial community and or what we call the healthy microbiome. So we compare chlorothalonil, uh, propiconazole, and the alternation of the two throughout the season. And what we found was that if you use keep using chlorothalonil repeatedly, by the end of the year or late season when the fungicide breaks down, there's no chemical suppression uh, existing. Then you actually see a surge of um, the disease. It is specifically here is dollar spot, whereas the plot received no fungicide at all, or the plot received a propiconazole, it will, will have actually lower disease severity. So meaning there's something happening with the plot that received repeatedly received uh, chlorothalonil. And our theory or our hypothesis here is that um, because of the broad spectrum of fungicide use at not only kill off a lot of the beneficial fungi, but also kill off a lot of the beneficial bacteria. So actually, you're making that environment more suitable for the development of a chloridia or what we call disease resurgence. And this is a phenomenon that it's been caught in or being observed in other a lot of other systems, especially for uh, like insects, um, pests, right? You're killing off of beneficial so once the the pests come back, there's no natural control of it. Mm-hmm. And that is our, our hypothesis. This project is actually uh, still going because in that study that you mentioned, we uh, we actually examined the flesh their compartment to try to see if there is any uh, disturbance of the microbiome that's there. But um, that's probably not the perfect compartment to, to study because there's extremely high microbial load. There is so much organic matter or readily available uh, substrate. So like the general microbial load kind of overwhelmed the target in our minds, the, the beneficial microbes. So we couldn't really see a very good, uh, clear signal on, you know, the disturbance of the beneficial uh, community there. Um, so we're, we're actually on to the phylosphere, so the leaf surface microbiome now, and we got a funding. Actually, Dr. Paul Koch led the project, so 
you know, we got the funding through uh, a USDA agricultural microbiome uh, grant this February. So they're going to uh, focus on the, the, the phylosphere environment to see if there's any more apparent signal that I can uh, that, that they can see. It's kind of interesting when you think about there's a lot of chatter recent years about fall dollar spot being more severe than spring dollar spot outbreaks. And there's some discussion about maybe being different varieties or different species, but you just wonder if that is contributing to the late season fall dollar spot. But but the, the fact is, is that we can't, you know, we can't have dollar spot all season just to, we've got to treat the dollar spot in season, right? Because turf managers aren't going to deal with that. But how can we walk the balance between making the fungicide applications we got to make to maintain the playing conditions that are expected with, you know, cultivating this beneficial microbiome over time? Are there things we can do or the things we can apply or not apply or, you know, what, how can we cultivate that microbiome while also providing the expected playing conditions? Yeah. So that, that, that is a great question. That's also the question that we're asking in, in both projects that we talked about. Um, so Paul, I think they're going to try out different uh, fungicide mode of action, trying to see if how much of that beneficial microbial community disturbance each fungicide will do to. And also uh, on my side, I'm going to uh, do a larger scale survey to see how we can tie uh, different management practices, including uh, you know fungicide application intensity, frequency, to um, the disease suppressedness of um, of the microbiome in in each turf um, grass, so you know we're we're on using uh, similar techniques, but onto different um, theory and hypothesis that we're testing. So that, that's a very good question. It's it's neat to kind of see these questions that have been asked for so many years, starting to put some actual you know effort and research into it. Yeah, and, and we we see so we actually see some signs. Yeah, I think that's the beauty of having those uh, higher throughput tools, uh, molecular tools that we can use that really give us an opportunity to explore what's going on. And then we can really use the, the data to help us justify where what direction we want to navigate towards. Mm-hmm. Right? If there's no sign of, say, disturbance in the microbiome, then there's no really, you know, make no sense to go going down that route. But uh, in fact, we see something. So that's what, what we're on to now. So, me, where do you see the future of, of biocontrol going? I mean, obviously, understanding the community of these suppressive soils is is vitally important. And you're opening this Pandora's box and we're learning a lot as we go on. But um, in terms of the products that are out there, those that claim biocontrol, we, like you said, we know they work, but maybe not to the degree that we would hope. Um, so do you see the future? Is it is it in better formulations with some of these, these microbes or their... Um, uh, you know, really, the, the obviously, concentration and shelf life and all those things that we consider all the time. Where do you see the future going with biocontrol products? I think we have decent biocontrol product now if you don't compare it with a synthetic fungicide, right? If we think think about how long we've been using or studying or investigating uh, synthetic fungicide, it's almost so we start using chemical control of plant disease since sixteen hundred. Right, we're using arsenic. We're using those crazy stuff. Like it's unimaginable nowadays, right? So the the, the chemist has been studying those, and at the time we we're using 
chemical control of disease. We didn't even know what's causing the disease. Not until 1800, we don't know. We know nothing about, you know, it's actually the microbes contributing to plant diseases, right? The biocontrol products were only, were only about, I don't know, 50, 60 years or at most uh, less than a century that we have any experience with. So it's, it's an unfair comparison. And it's really a very different philosophy when you're using biological control um, because it really takes time. That the, that the core um, function for biological control, especially for microbes, is that they have to get into the system, they have to establish, they have to thrive in order to provide the function. So it really takes time. You can't really use biocontrol product for curative or if you see any early signs of uh, diseases, it's already too late. And you have to do, you have to culture them. You have to provide the, the right environment over a long time. Right. And then all the practices you, you do will affect the, the efficacy of the biocontrol product. For example, the fungicide you put down, right? If you're putting down, um, say, a bacterial uh, biological control product, then you're putting down a fungicide that has, bio, uh, has bacterial side effects. Then it doesn't work. Right. So there's a lot of things to, to, to think about and a lot of things that we have to figure out until we know how to use the product right. And also, I think there is the a main problem for the developed biocontrol products because what's available right now, they're probably mostly belongs to three uh, genera of bacteria. It's either um, streptomonas, uh, I think it's Pseudomonas, uh, Bacillus, and Streptomyces. Right. So there, um, and those three uh, genera of bacteria and the origin of those biological control product actually from soil or root compartment. So if you're trying to use that to go against foliar pathogen, I don't think that that, that works that they show that they can colonize the foliar. Don't get me wrong, but uh, it's not there. They're made genetically made for in that compartment, right? It's very different environment than the soil environment, which they have been adapt and, you know, evolve or we don't know how many, you know, hundreds of thousands or millions of years. So they have that gen genetic makeup to, to thrive in that environment, provide the biological function where we originally, originally discovered. Um, so I think that's, a, it's, I think there is a little gap there. If we're talking about, you know, controlling foliar disease, foliar pathogen with those three genera. To that point, yeah. I mean, how many of these, suppressive microbes that you run into via the molecular methodologies, how many of them are suspected to be even culturable? Because obviously the bacillus, the streptomyces, the pseudomonas, we can culture them, we can scale them up, we can then put them out into the system, but how many, what percentage are actually obligate versus you can actually maybe grow them at some point? Yeah, I mean, the culturable microbes is estimated to be less than 10% of what, you know, what we know, right? So it's very a small proportion, but um, I think there is a need for developing new culture methods. So for the current culture method, you know, there's that portion that we talked about, but over time we'll would be able to, I think we'll be able to work because of the exploration. We know there's so much out there and we can use the molecular weight to discover what they need as an environment to actually being alive. I mean, that's the first step to being alive. And, and then we can design spe specific media 
you know, to, to accommodate their needs. So potentially we're, we're on a, a better a direction on being able to culture more and more, um, those previously unculturable, uh, microbes. So I think they're, 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 it's, it's a great potential for us to, to, uh, discover new biocontrol through that, uh, novel or a newly developed cultural media. It's an exciting frontier. It's good stuff. Yeah. So I think there, there's also a need to explore a different compartment, right? So like we just, we, we study, we spend a lot of time study. There's more extensive, extensive study on the root compartment and soil compartment because we know they're, uh, microbial rich. Um, and now there, there are more study coming out for studying uh, phylosophy. They're more difficult to study. And I think there is a need to study specific, uh, Hyphosphere, like uh, the fungal hyphae, especially pathogen associated microbes. There's a lot of microbes that, for example, bacteria that can feed directly on the fungal hyphae. And then if they, they have that genetic makeup to, to really utilize the substrate directly from fungal, fungal hyphae, that probably means that one, they can penetrate the immune system of fungi. And then they, you know, they, they can kill or, or at least suppress the activity of fungi to some extent. Um, so I think there is a need to study, the, you know, fungal hyphal related or associated micro uh, microbiome. There, there might be something there. Sounds like we still have a lot to learn. Is kind of what this summarizes too. But it's all fascinating information, and I think that you know, as we kind of try to wrap our heads around how products evolve into how we use them with turf grass managers. This is a very important conversation and very informative conversation. So kind of reaching towards the end of our, of our time today. Um, so I guess I'll wrap up with one last question for you. In your opinion, what is the best wine growing region in the United States? Well, that's a, that's a tough question. It depends on uh, what you're looking for. If you're talking about dry white wine, I'll say Finger Lakes because that's where uh, I spent a lot of time. I really enjoyed the the dry Riesling from uh, upstate New York, Finger Lake region. If you're talking about um, you know big red wine, then of course Napa Valley. You know uh, they make the world class uh, Cabernet Sauvignon. And then if you want something uh, more subtle and uh, with the complexity, then Oregon Pinot Noir is your, your choice. And there are so many different uh, wine regions to explore, and then they all make very good wine. Uh, some are, are developing, but obviously wine is a, is a really personal thing. You know, everybody likes different wine. So, but there's so much to discover, like what we talked about, like microbiome. Um, yeah. whatever wine region you, you go to, you will find something great there. I think. A safe and diplomatic answer. I like it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> something <laughs> for true. everybody. That, that's true. I, if we talk about whole world region, like in, in Europe and in, in France, even there is a lot of unknown region that, you know, they're not even on the wine map of the world. But if you go there, you would just be fascinated by any of the, like the house wine, the little, you know, restaurant you go into and they just have, um, you know, like a, 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 a jug of whatever wine and the poly is grown from their backyard and it's really, it's really good. Um, so there's, there's so much to explore. And, you know, I think it's all about the mindset of Europe having that a big red wine, Cabernet Sauvignon mindset to taste any wine and you're going to hate 99.9% .9 of the wine in the world. But if you're open minded and open to any new experience, 
then you'll enjoy most of the wine region. Seems like a topic for another podcast. So, yeah. no doubt. Well, I mean, you, we appreciate your time today. Really informative, really, really, really neat stuff. Yep. Thank Thanks. you so much. Thanks for opportunity. Thank Thanks again. That wraps up our interview with Dr. Chow. A sincere thank you to Dr. Chow for his time. This show would not be possible without the willingness and cooperation of folks across our industry willing to share their stories with us. Turf Dudes exist to communicate important research findings and turf management trends to turfgrass managers as part of Harold's mission to grow a better world. If you enjoy the show, we want your feedback. If you have a topic you'd like for us to address or a person you'd like to hear from, please send it to us at turfdudes at herald.com. That's T-U-R-P-H-D-U-D-E-S at heralds.com. While you're at it, you can subscribe to our show on iTunes, YouTube Music, or SoundCloud. We'll see you next time.